Please turn in your Bibles, uh, first of all, to 1 Peter chapter 5. going to be looking at two passages today, 1 Peter 5 and then 1 Timothy 3. Uh, Currently, we are uh, in the process, as I said during the announcements, of receiving nominations for the offices of elder and uh, deacon. And if someone is nominated and uh, is willing to receive that nomination, they will then go through a period of uh, training followed by examination, and uh, if eligible at the end of that, will be presented to you as communing members for election. And, and therefore, I think, it's, uh, I think it's imperative for, for, you, for the church to know, first of all, what the, the qualifications for elders and deacons are, and then secondly, what elders and deacons <coughs> are called to do in service to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this: this uh, this season of nomination, it's not like a it's not like a political election. No one has been uh, campaigning for your votes. I, at least I hope not. Uh, it, it's not a popularity contest. This isn't about status, but rather this is about the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ, our ascended Savior. Uh, calls and equips and gifts men for, for, for ministry. And those gifts are outwardly confirmed by the congregation. I think that's implied, at least in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when we're given these qualifications for both elders and deacons, the implication being that the church's responsibility and privilege and duty is to outwardly confirm those grace-given qualifications that the Lord Jesus is giving to particular men. And so you play an important role in the nomination and election of the leaders here at Trinity Presbyterian Church. So this is, I want to remind us, this is a, this is a solemn and serious matter. I, I hope during season of nomination that we've all been praying about this, The Lord would give us clarity as to who he may be uh, calling to the work of the eldership or the diaconate here at Trinity Church. And and I also pray that we would be carefully reflecting and thinking about, well, we shouldn't be seeking our own will here, but but the will of Christ our King that is revealed in his word. And therefore, that's where I want us to turn this morning as we think about this important matter of the, of the church. Today I want us to think about the, the, the marks and then the ministry of elders. And then next week we'll think about deacons. But first, let me lead us in prayer before we read God's word. Lord, we remember right now that opened up before us is the very word of God. And we confess that without the Spirit's help that we would be prone to to misread and misuse and even even bend your word to our own desires and for our own agendas. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves before you this morning and and ask that by the, the ministry of your Holy Spirit that your word would rule in each of our hearts and that your holy word would rule over this church. 
We pray that Jesus Christ, our King, would reign over us today with the scepter of his word. And we ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's read first 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Would you turn with me then to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll read the first seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's begin with 1 Timothy 3 this morning and and dive right in. This passage is in need of no introduction because Paul gives us an introduction. And so first of all, I, I want you to see the vital importance of Paul's words. He begins with the words, the saying is trustworthy. That is a saying we find five times in the pastorals. First, and 2 Timothy and Titus. It's a phrase he uses to highlight something important, something that he wants to really emphasize as great, of, of great importance. Now Paul used this phrase to introduce the most important saying in all of the world back in chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And so Paul highlights the importance of the gospel with this phrase. And then using this same phrase, he highlights the importance of church leadership, church government. And so according to Paul, church leadership is a really, really big deal. It matters a lot. 
This is a trustworthy saying that the church needs to hear. It's not something that should be set aside. It's not something that should be ignored only for a select few. It's not something that should be forgotten. Just as the gospel of Jesus Christ is a trustworthy saying, so this saying about elders is a saying that the church must hold in high esteem. Now why? That's a question we might ask. Why Why is this so important for us to understand? I think think for several reasons. First, it's important because leaders have a major influence in the church. Now, this is a universal principle, isn't it? As the leadership of an organization goes, um, so goes the organization. Uh, While I was in seminary, I worked in a, a really small grocery store And the manager of the store uh, did not manage his household well, if I can put it that way. He didn't plan for the future. He mistreated his employees. He he cut corners. He was really just in it for for, for the money immediately. And actually, not long after I left the job, the, the doors of that grocery store were closed. It went out of business. And you see, healthy leadership is vital for the health of an organization and and healthy leadership is vital for the health of a congregation. Secondly, it's important because our understanding of the eldership must be grounded in God's word. Because if, if we do not constantly check our thinking about the eldership against Holy Scripture, it is very, very easy for all of us to develop ideas and expectations about leadership that are not actually grounded or found in God's word. A third reason this is important, I think, is to to encourage and challenge and revitalize elders who are presently serving. I I was deeply challenged this week and I was richly blessed this week because I need to be reminded of what Christ calls me and my fellow elders to do here at Trinity Presbyterian Church. I need to be exhorted, along with my fellow elders, to shepherd the flock of God. And fourth, I think this is important because we we always, always want to be thinking about the future of this church, the future of this congregation. We always want to be thinking about the next generation, and and others whom the Lord is calling to leadership in the church. We need to understand that training the next generation of leadership at Trinity Presbyterian Church is something that begins right now. It's something that needs to be taking place currently. And, And finally, this is important for all of us because Scripture calls us to follow and submit to church leaders who themselves Follow and submit to Christ. So let's walk through what Paul says up here about the marks of elders in verses 2 through 7. The first mark, you see it right there, actually in verse uh, verse 1, is an aspiration for the work of the eldership. A desire for this noble task. You know, we may think if someone aspires to be an elder, I don't know about you, but, but maybe your first inclination, my first inclination is to think that, that, that disqualifies them. 
right? Immediately from the get-go. If you didn't know how this verse went, listen to it. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, how would you finish that verse? I think our tendency might be to say that that individual is ruled out. And so sometimes we think it should only be you know, reluctant and hesitant men who, who don't desire such a work that should be elders. But I just want you to see, notice that's not what Paul says. He says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And this is no small desire Paul is talking about. The language that Paul uses refers to somebody reaching out, someone stretching out. It's intentional. It's deliberate. And Paul commends that desire. Now, of course, Paul rules out desiring this work for selfish reasons. And Peter did that in 1 Peter 5, didn't he? No one, no one should desire it for, for a title, for selfish gain, to, to have their own way, to impose their opinions on secondary matters in the church. Those motives are all wrong. The desire Paul is talking about is motivated by love for God and love for the people of God. And so, as, as a congregation, as communing members responsible for identifying future leaders, here's one thing I think you should be on the lookout for. Men who desire this work. And a good question to ask them would simply be, why, why do you desire this work? And the answer ought to be, because I love the Lord and I want to give myself, my time, my energies, my resources to the people of God. And so I want to I challenge the men today to cultivate this desire for a noble task. So it's an admirable work. My friends, there is work that needs to be done in the church. Hard work that can be toilsome and stressful. But Paul calls it a noble work. Actually, the word he uses is the word beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful work. Just this week, I'm, uh, I started reading A River Runs Through It by uh, Norman MacLean. Um, and the main character, as some of you will know, was uh, the son of a Presbyterian minister who taught his boys the, the art of fly fishing. And at one point in the story, he says, My father, unlike most Presbyterians, often used the word beautiful. That jumped out at me because I had just been studying this passage. And here's Paul talking about biblical Presbyterianism, and he calls it a beautiful work, a beautiful labor, a good, noble thing. Yes, it's hard. Yes, there's sweat and pain and sacrifice, along with the many, many joys. But it's a beautiful work when it is carried out according to the will of Jesus Christ. And so it's not something to be avoided or shunned or barely tolerated because God says it's good. It's a noble labor. It's a beautiful work. Have you ever maybe you've never thought about this. What what's beautiful about the work of the eldership? Have you ever ask yourself what what's noble about this? What's good? I think it's a beautiful work because it is to be an expression of the shepherding care of Jesus Christ himself for his sheep. In other words, biblical Presbyterianism is 
beautiful because it is intended to express the love and concern and care and discipline and oversight of Jesus himself for his people. Well, let's, let's look over the other marks, though. Paul, Paul identifies in verses 2 through 7. Paul says in verse 2, Therefore, an elder must be. And we need to recognize that first. Given, given that this is vitally important, given that this is a noble task, Paul lays out rigorous qualifications. Right? There's, a, there's an uncompromising nature to this standard, isn't there? It's not, it's not a wish list. It, it's not a recommended list. It's, it's a required list. Because the honor of Christ, the health of Christ's people, and our witness to the world depends on it, brothers and sisters. So there's no, the church cannot compromise here. And Paul lays out 14 marks or characteristics or qualifications of elders or elders to be in these verses. Now we can't, we can't unpack them in detail, but I, I want you to just see the big idea. Here's the, the big mark. The big mark is godly character. Elders must be men of grace-generated, grace-created character. Think about this. Out of the 14 marks, only one of them actually relates directly to ministry skill. An elder must be able to teach. But what about the rest of them? The rest of them are all about personal character, not, not giftedness, not not smarts or wits, not personality, as many people, I think, focus on today. But no, Paul says it's about godly character. And Paul talks about their characters here in the context of their personal life, their church life, their home life, and their public life. And he says he must be above reproach. Now, that doesn't mean sinless, because if that's what Paul meant, you, you wouldn't have any elders here at Trinity Presbyterian Church. It means free from scandalous sin. Now, accusations likely will be thrown at elders, but Paul is saying that they'll, just, they'll fall off of him. Right? Accusations will be made, but they won't stick because the integrity of this individual has been proven to the people. I think, I think the virtue of self-control, the idea of self-control, really holds together many of these other qualifications that Paul identifies. Now, by self-control, I don't mean uh, someone who, who lives the Christian life by their own strength. I don't mean someone who's a self-made man or whatever you want to call it. These are, these are spirit-dependent men, and the work of God in their lives has produced self-control in these areas. And by the way, we need to hear this, that there are character traits listed here that every Christian is called to. That's, a, that's an important thing for us to recognize. An elder is not called to a higher form of Christian living or to a different standard of godliness, but rather the elder is called to be a living, breathing, walking example of the Christian life that Christ calls us all to. And so what does, what does this life look like? First, self-control in sexual matters. Faithfulness in marriage. He's the husband of one wife, Paul says. He's not saying that uh, you know, someone who's unmarried is, is uh, 
disqualified or someone who has been divorced on biblical grounds is disqualified from the eldership. But he's saying a man who is married is devoted singularly to his wife. I uh, jokingly last night I was looking at this passage and Kelsey sat beside me on the couch and I, I said, you know, a lot of guys today like getting tattoos and Greek and Hebrew verses today. It's kind of a trendy thing to do. I said, here's a really, here's a unique tattoo we could get. Uh, Mios gunikos andra. That's what Paul says here. And literally it just means one woman man. That's what Paul says here. One woman man. He's a one woman man. And uh, going on though, he, he says self-controlled and he's self-controlled in his thinking. He's, he's sober-minded. He doesn't he doesn't jump to rash conclusions. He is cautious and, when necessary, slow and clear-headed. He's, he's self-controlled with alcohol. He's not a drunkard or addicted to other substances. The, I think the principle is, of course, broader than that. He must not be ruled by unhealthy addictions. He's self-controlled in conflict. We know how important that is in our home life and in the life of the church, he doesn't lose it. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't try to get even. He doesn't blow up on people. He's not violent, but what? Gentle. He's not violent in his speech. He's not violent in his actions. And I think this is such a vir- this is a, one of those virtues that just largely goes overlooked by the world, dear friends. But Paul says, true godliness in the life of a man looks like gentleness. Gentleness in the way he deals with with others. He's also not quarrelsome or quick to jump into arguments or start arguments. Instead, he pursues peace. He knows when to speak and when to be silent, when to be firm and when to be gentle. He's self-controlled with money, with finances. He's not a lover of money. And the way he spends his money in a positive way is a picture of a well-ordered life. And so in all these areas, there's this, there's this beautiful, grace-produced self-control. But notice this isn't just a list of negatives. There's also uh, several positives that Paul identifies here. He's hospitable. <laughs> he's, he's warm and welcoming to others. He befriends the stranger. He, he's warm and welcoming to others at church. And he's warm and welcoming to others in his, in his home. He understands that one of the best ways to develop relationships with others is, is through showing hospitality. By, by opening up your door and your life to others. He's able to teach. Again, this is the one ministry skill requirement. He must be able and therefore willing to teach others the truth of God's word. And then Paul says... He must manage his own household well. Notice how Paul slows down here and emphasizes this mark. Now, in verse 3, Paul listed 11 qualifications. And now in verses 4 and 5, he takes two verses to talk about just this one. So this is for Paul. This is important. He must manage his own household well. Paul's point here, I think, is that there is a parallel between the way a man manages his household and the way he will manage the household of God. How a man cares for his own family and how he will care for the family of God. 
And notice how the language, this is important, notice how the language of caring is parallel to managing. Caring informs the word manage. So managing the household is not bullying others into submission, ruling with an iron fist through fear and intimidation. This is managing well, persuasively, winningly, out of love and care and concern. Paul is saying simply this, if you want to know how a man will minister in the church, care for the church, look at how he first of all cares for his own family. And then finally, Paul says uh, in, in verses six through seven, that they must be spiritually mature and well thought of by outsiders. Paul is not saying that they, they, they must be old, although I think in God's providence, that's typically the case because of the experience that men have from years of life. But you can, you can be old and spiritually immature, can't you? You can be old and a recent convert, and you can have young men who are spiritually mature and young men who have been converted for years. So the major issue here is not age. I think the major issue is spiritual maturity. They must not be a recent convert lest they become puffed up. And so here are the marks of elders in, in summary. Number one, men who long, who, who desire to do the work of the eldership. Men of grace-produced godly character. Men able to teach, hospitable, they manage their household well, uh, with loving care. They're spiritually mature and they are well thought of by outsiders. Those are the biblical marks that you as a congregation should be on the lookout for as you consider nominating men to office. But, <clears throat> so the marks of elders is important, but what do elders do? That's another important thing for us to think about. It's vital for us not only to know what kind of elders Trinity Presbyterian Church needs, but also what those elders are called by Christ himself to do. So that we have the right expectations about what eldership is all about. So secondly, I want us to think about the ministry of elders from 1 Peter 5. We don't have time to unpack that whole passage this morning. So I'm actually just going to focus on verse 2. Uh, the main image the Bible uses for elders is, is shepherd. So look at verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Pastor or shepherd the flock of God. You know, we, we, typically we, we reserve the word pastor for, you know, people like Dave or myself. But actually... You know, we have, we have Pastor Jim and Pastor Jeff and Pastor Morgan because they're shepherds. That's what, that's what God calls them to, to be and do in the household of, of God. So the dominant model we find in Scripture is not, not a manager or administrator or CEO or a board director. The, the dominant imagery is that of a, of a tender shepherd. Now, your elders recently finished a book that we were reading together on the eldership, the book is The Shepherd Leader by uh, Timothy Whitmer. And if you, if you want to read more about the ministry of elders, that is the book I would encourage you to read. It's a great book. And Whitmer, in that book, he describes the ministry of shepherd elders with four verbs. Know, lead, feed, and protect. Know the sheep, lead the sheep, feed the sheep, 
and protect the sheep. And then Whitmer talks about those verbs on both the corporate and personal level. And so shepherds are, are, are called by God to, to know, lead, feed, and protect the sheep in a corporate capacity as well as a personal, individual capacity. And, and the elders have taken a lot of that study together, and this morning I want to share some of it with you and how we are seeking to apply the, the shepherding ministry here at Trinity. Now, I want you to know this. I want you to know this for your own information, but, but also so that we as your elders are accountable to you in our, our ministry. Uh, so what does Peter mean? This is the verse I want us to think about. What does Peter mean when he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you? Here are four ways your, your elders are seeking to follow that command. First, shepherding the flock requires knowing the flock, doesn't it? It requires a relationship between sheep and and shepherd. A shepherd cannot care for sheep he doesn't know, and sheep will not follow a shepherd they they do not recognize. So that means shepherds are, are not aloof and distant, but are called to be involved with and in the lives of the people. And therefore, to to know the flock, remember both the corporate and personal. I want to try to unpack some implications here. To know the flock corporately, one of the ways we try to do that is to maintain an accurate membership role to know who belongs to this particular flock. I think this is one of the reasons church membership is is so important. God, God tells elders one day... They will, they will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account for every soul that Christ placed under their care. That's an incredibly humbling and sobering idea for, for your elders. I think, I think that means there has to be a relationship established between shepherds and the flock, and there has to be a way for shepherds to identify members of the flock. And church membership is one way we try to do that here at Trinity. But of course, you know, let me say this, you're not just names on a membership role. And we want to see each of you personally, individually cared for. Every, Every member of the flock should know and be known by an elder. So, so what we've done in light of what Tim Whitmer says in his book is we've established these shepherding groups that we've talked to you about. We've taken our membership role and assigned members of the congregation to an elder. And we've asked elders to be in, in regular contact with their shepherd, shepherding groups, whether it be by uh, personal conversation, through phone call, through occasional visit, or through hospitality, the elder welcoming you into their their own home. And so our aim in this, to know the flock, is for every member to have a relationship with an elder, to, to know and be known. So this is the first area. Shepherding means knowing the flock. And then secondly, shepherding involves leading the flock. Look at verse 3 of 1 Peter 5. Shepherd the flock, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, on a corporate level, 
Leading involves decision-making, doesn't it? I mean, this is probably the primary way people think about the responsibility of elders. Shepherds have to make important decisions that impact the entire flock. Now, where, where are we going in the future? Is the flock well cared for and well nourished? What about, what about our responsibility to, to missions and evangelism? How are we doing? How can we reach out to people with the gospel? You see, biblical leadership is not merely reactive. Biblical leadership is proactive. It has a, a future-looking visionary view. So it doesn't just seek to maintain the status quo. It involves regularly asking the important and hard questions. How, how are we doing? Are we being faithful here? How can we grow in faithfulness? How can we, how can we better serve the Lord? And how can we tr- be training future leaders and servants in this congregation? But, but elders are called to lead not just by making decisions. Peter says they're to lead by personal example. And this is why, you know, bring it down to the personal level. I think that's why Paul put such an emphasis on godly character back in 1 Timothy 3. This means elders do not rule by manipulation or intimidation, but primarily by the power of formative leadership by example. Of course, of course, shepherds are called to pursue straying sheep and Use the crook of the, the, the staff to bring sheep back from danger. But the primary way they lead is by example. You know, the word Peter uses is typos, the word, word for type or, or pattern. And so by the grace of God at work, shepherds are to be living pictures of the Christian life before the congregation's eyes. My friends, that means... I direct this first at myself, my fellow elders, and men aspiring to be elders. That means God calls you to a life taken up with love for the Lord Jesus Christ and service in his kingdom. So so it means your relationship with Jesus, the way you care for your family, the way you serve in the church, and the way you live in the world is all about the glory of Jesus Christ. But then third, shepherding involves not only knowing and leading, but also feeding the sheep. Shepherds make sure the flock is well fed. They don't starve the flock. And if they do, they're the kind of shepherds Ezekiel condemns in Ezekiel 34. You know, uh, while, while our monthly church lunch is, is, a, is a, well, it's a feast fit for kings, if I can say that. You know, that's not the kind of feeding or eating I'm talking about here. What kind of, what kind of food do, do we need as sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ? What does Jesus himself say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so faithful under shepherds will seek to guide the sheep to the green pastures of God's word. It is is God's word alone that satisfies the souls of God's people, and it's God's word alone that grows God's people. That means if, if elders lead sheep away from the rich pastures of God's word, the flock will become malnourished and weak in, in the faith. 
And so our aim, our aim as a session of, of shepherds is to make sure you are well nourished by God's word. And this means, practically speaking, the session oversees the, the public ministry of the word. This includes the preaching of the word. I am accountable to my fellow elders for what I say in the pulpit, and I'm thankful for that. But it also involves responsibility for things like the Sunday school classes on the more personal levels, perhaps, Bible studies and small group ministries. And, and, and we want to oversee these things because we want our congregational life to be spent together feeding on the green pastures of the word of God. Of course, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really sticking it to, to myself and elders today. But, but this, this also includes you, doesn't it? I mean, this, this calls forth something from you. There's a responsibility you have as members of the flock. You have to be with the flock eating and being fed by God's word. So, so come and be nourished by the word of God. Come, come, to, come to Sunday school. Come, come to morning and evening worship. And if your schedule allows, be involved in other ministries taking place throughout the week. Finally, shepherding involves protecting the flock. Shepherds are called to, to protect the sheep. Uh, the, the word Paul used back in 1 Timothy 3 was the word overseer, from which we get the word bishop. Overseer, that that's describes the, the function of what elders are called to do. They, they oversee, they watch over. And Peter says the same thing here in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God by exercising oversight. So the elders to oversee the flock, to look after the sheep as as a loving parent might watch after their child, keeping them from danger. Protection begins then with, with the, here's the foundation of a protective ministry. The foundation is teaching and preaching God's word. The scripture warns us about dangers to the flock, tells us about false teachers and false teachers who, who dress up in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves who will devour the sheep. Timothy Whitmer, I, I thought this was helpful in the book, talked about cultural wolves that threaten the flock. Lies like materialism, like you can be satisfied by stuff. Sensuality, that you can find satisfaction in a fleeting moment of sinful pleasure. Uh, the, the, the lie of pluralism, that there's more than one way to God, and, and the, the, lie that, the lie that derives from that relativism, that all truth is ultimately relative to societies and cultures. Uh, there are cultural values that pervade our lives. I mean, this is, this is the air that you and I live and breathe in, and we need to be warned about these destructive lies and be equipped with God's word to stand against them. And in corporate protection also includes church discipline. Church discipline, we, we say, is for the glory of Christ, the reclamation of the offending sinner, but it's also for the purity and protection of the entire flock. And of course, protection has to be personal. But I think as soon as you start talking about personal protection... 
This is when people begin to start pulling away. I think this is why sometimes people are drawn to, to, to you know, mega churches. Not that there's something inherently sinful or wrong about being a, a mega church, but it is easy to kind of slip in, isn't it? It's easy to, to go there and remain anonymous, to go unnoticed by the leadership of, of the church. But as elders called to shepherd the flock, we see here shepherding involves knowing, leading, feeding, and protecting the flock. And protecting means that every member is lovingly looked after by under-shepherds. I read, I read this, knowing, leading, feeding, protecting the flock, corporately, personally. I, this week, I just kept coming back to this. What a challenge. Who, who in the world is sufficient for these things? These are challenging words. These are convicting words. The, the high standard Peter and Paul lays out here for elders, and my friends, the truth of the, fact, the, truth of the matter is no one in this room can meet these standards apart from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I don't think it's significant that both of these passages, as they lay out this high calling for elders, also focus our attention on the chief shepherd himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll be the first to say to you today, and then my other elders can stand up with me, we're not perfect We are not perfect elders. There is only one perfect elder and he is the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to say instead of elders getting discouraged, bogged down in guilt or weighed down by the sheer weight of the responsibility, I think Peter and Paul intend to encourage us as well in both of these passages. Paul Paul particularly makes it clear that God in his grace enables what he commands. If you aren't there, you can go back to 1 Timothy 3 and look, look at it with me as I make some concluding remarks. But I think this is made so clear in 1 Timothy 3. After giving this high standard for both elders and then for deacons, Paul doesn't just conclude that section, does he? He doesn't wrap up things there. He doesn't leave elders and deacons without reminding them of the source of true godliness. He doesn't stop without reminding them of the foundation of godliness. And so Paul wraps up this chapter by saying, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. He's reminding us, dear friends, not only for elders, but for all of us, what makes godliness possible. Remember Jesus Christ. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. A mystery is something that was once hidden but is now revealed. And godliness is a life lived in faith and obedience to the Lord. And what is the mystery of godliness? Isn't it? It sounds strange when you read it. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. He, a person. What is the mystery of godliness? It is Christ Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus incarnate, Jesus crucified, Jesus raised, Jesus ascended, and Jesus believed on in the world. He is the good shepherd who saves us from our sins And is able to cover over all of our failings and faults. 
He is the ascended Lord who who now gives gifts and equips men for the ministry. And so it's the gospel that undergirds the eldership. Just as that's true in every other area of the Christian life and our faith. And so it's the gospel we need to come back to again and again. Keep, keep coming back to Christ manifested in the flesh and justified for sinners. Keep coming back to the good shepherd who laid down his life for us all because that is the foundation of everything else. Well, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and the way that it challenges us. Uh, the way it convicts us and the way it lifts us up and encourages us in the good news of Jesus Christ manifested in the flesh. Lord, we, we pray that your rich blessing would be upon Trinity Presbyterian Church as we desire and seek to be faithful in our service uh, to you. Uh, Lord, we entrust this word to you, write it upon our hearts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.